Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number eight of Till We Have Faces. As tonight, we get to the enactment of Orwell's uh, grim resolution uh, that she comes to. But first, we have to finish watching her come to her conclusion. Um, but uh, first, before we do that, a, uh, a couple announcements. First of all, we have uh, uh, on the uh, on the moot front, which is always fun to talk about. We just had Mountain Moot. Lovely to see folks. Uh, got to um, got to talk with Sarah over lunch, which was great, and uh, to see a whole bunch of people. Um, uh, it's our second. Well, that was our second Mountain Moot out in Denver, uh, and just a wonderful time. Um, we um, uh, we then are getting ready now for our last fall season moot, our last moot of calendar year 2023, and that is Bayou Moot down in New Orleans. This is our first trip ever down there to New Orleans, so looking forward to that. I uh, hope that some folks can make it down there. And then next year we have three new moots that just got posted for the spring. We have official dates and registration open for Tex Moot, for the UK moot, we're going back to Europe at last. We haven't been back to Europe since 2019 now, since uh, before the pandemic. So we're finally headed back to Europe. We're going to be doing our UK moot in York, England this year. So that should be great fun. Um, and then uh, we will be, um, uh, and then we'll be headed um, to, and then the third one that got posted today is Carolina Moot, uh, going back to North Carolina. So uh, that won't be until the fall um, uh, of next year uh, in September. But we're um, uh, but but it's going to be fun to get back to the southeast. Haven't had a, uh, one of those since our last Magnolia Moot, which was down in golly, that was uh, again that was pre-pandemic too, I believe. So uh, anyway, lots of Lots of fun. So those again, the the registrations for those just opened uh, just opened this week or today. Sorry, this very day as is. Um, now the other thing, of course, that I wanted to announce is that this week is the beginning of our fall fundraising campaign. Uh, fall fundraising campaign is an annual tradition at Signum University, where we I do two things. First, uh, to remind folks who haven't had a chance to, to donate yet that Signum University really has been thriving on the strength of the donations, the generosity of our community. We are a crowdfunded university, unlike very many other universities um, who tend to raise their money in different ways. Um, the, way in, the, the way in which we have been supported uh, by people just giving what they can, uh, making Whatever size of tax-deductible donation uh, you can to Signum University has just been a really big, big help uh, over the years. Um, and, of course, the other thing that I like to do in addition to reminding people that now is the perfect time uh, to begin your donation if you, uh, if you haven't done so yet. The other thing, of course, is to thank everybody who has been donating. Um, and uh, it's, just, it's, a, it's a wonderful time of year to celebrate uh, the support and generosity of everybody, the hundreds of people who donate to Signum uh, and really make what we do possible. What we do, of course, especially meaning uh, the ability that we have to be able to offer educational opportunities to people for really low prices. Um, we couldn't make ends meet with that if we didn't also have really generous 
giving uh, to, to help to supplement and support that. Um, so many thanks to everybody who donates. And as part of the celebration of that season, um, we're going to be doing giveaways. Um, I'm going to be doing giveaways every week. This has been kind of traditional. We're doing it in a slightly different mechanism this year. For those of you who have listened to other broadcasts I've done this week, you will be prepared for this. Um, but uh, let me let me explain. Uh, for those of you who have not uh, been able to attend either Other Minds and Hands or Exploring the Lord of the Rings this week. Um, so I have prepared a very simple Google form, uh, which just asks for your name and email. Um, you can enter uh, once per week. And I will do a drawing next week during, uh, at the beginning of class, I will do, um, I will do a live drawing. Um, and the winner will get a choice of one of three prizes. The winner will either get to, uh, to have a, uh, a free ticket to a, uh, to a regional moot of your choice, or uh, the person could choose a month, uh, a, 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 a flight uh, into a free space class. Or you could choose a free anytime audit class. Uh, so one of the recordings of our uh, uh, of one of our grad courses. So you can choose an anytime audit of one of our grad courses, a flight in our space program for a month, or a regional moot of your choice. Um, so those are the three. Um, uh, those are the three opportunities. And yeah, exactly, Sarah. The reason, so the, 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 the form to enter your name in the drawing is going to be open all week long so that people who only get a chance to uh, listen to or watch the class asynchronously are able to participate as well. So um, don't spam the form now. Only one entry per person per week, though you can enter again next week. Um, uh, but... Um, no, Jackie, if you have one from last year, it won't have expired. Uh, just send an email to info at signumu.org and we'll get you sorted out there. Um, yes, so once per week per broadcast, JJ, that's right. Again, if you've attended multiple broadcasts or you're listening to multiple broadcasts, totally fine. Uh, there are different links for each one and you'll see it's got the name of the broadcast on it. So you are, you're very welcome to enter each one that you, uh, uh, that you come across here. And the form, Jocelyn, is right there. There's the link, and I'm going to post it everywhere here. Um, and for people who are listening, after the fact, you can find the link to the form in the description of the, uh, of the YouTube recording of this session. So um, and I'm putting it in, in the YouTube description because, first of all, it's easy. Even if you don't normally watch or listen on YouTube, you can get there. Um, and it's also up, like, automatically right away. So um, anyway, so there you go. I encourage you to fill out the drawing sheet, and we'll, I, I will draw a winner next time. And now, um, now... Uh, I also wanted to say we're going to do a grand prize drawing, too. So um, at the end of our fall fundraising campaign, which is going to be on Saturday, December 9th, is going to be our webathon when I do my State of the University address and a bunch of other things. During that, uh, during that broadcast on Saturday the 9th, uh, I'm going to do a grand prize drawing for the Mythgard Academy. And that will be I'll do a draw, a, another drawing of everybody who has filled out uh, the form uh, during the whole month basically. And the grand prize, the Mythgard Academy grand prize, will be a special one-shot Mythgard Academy class on the text of your choice. So if there's like a short story or a poem that you would like to, to, to nominate, 
you can you can choose a short story or poem, or you could choose a movie or a TV episode, something we can cover in one session, right? It'll just it'll, it'll be a, a special one shot that we will dedicate to the to the short work again, being short story, poem, movie, or TV episode of your choice. Uh, and uh, I mean, I will. I may exercise some uh, 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 veto, but we we may end up discussing it, perhaps, uh, depending on what you choose. But I don't actually I have never in 10 years actually applied a veto, I think. So, uh, um, yeah. Anyway, so that's the grand prize that I will be distributing. So you guys will get to 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 choose your uh, to choose your your own text there. All right. So that. Uh, is one of the things that we're doing. And again, the point of the drawings and the giveaways, uh, you know, I, it's just it's just a way of saying thank you to all of you guys for the wonderful support that you are, both in uh, uh, the your donations, of course, uh, from so many of you, which, as I say, is, is really so necessary uh, to help to keep Signum afloat. But even just for your presence as well, which really also... Um, you know, I get both synchronously and, and asynchronously. Of course, obviously, I rely on the uh, contributions of those of you who can make it synchronously. Um, it would be harder for me to teach if I didn't have anybody attending live. Um, but even those of you who are only listening after the fact are still a big part of this as well. And it's always so good uh, to talk to people and hear from people who have been uh, who have been listening after the fact. All right. So. That's what we're doing. Um, and again, don't uh, if you want to make a donation to help support Signum University, totally tax-deductible donation, signumuniversity.org slash donate is the place to go. All right. Let us get back. I cannot put it off any longer. This is a painful set of chapters, um, though not nearly as painful as the next chapter uh, that we are... Uh, uh, that we're gonna that, that that we won't get to this time. Um, we're gonna do chapter uh, chapter thirteen and fourteen today. Um, chapter fifteen, the um, the conclusion um, is uh, is gonna be, yeah. Th- it is Yarrow. This is it's fascinating, isn't it? This is a really painful book. Um, there is both the um, the emotional sensitivity. And uh, and honesty of this book, um, the the things that it brings out and exposes are so painful, and yet um, it is not a book that ever at any point simply um, you know like relishes suffering. And I, I hope you know what I mean by that. I mean I think that there are many. There are many books that do seem to relish suffering, um, to just sort of grimly enjoy, you know, describing gruesome and palpitating things. Um, but um, anyway, we will, um, uh, we'll, we'll see. Anyway, okay. Um, but um, I, I, uh, yeah, okay. I'm not gonna, I was, I'm not gonna even hint about the ending. We'll see where we get. Um, I uh, I love this book and where it goes. It does not. Um, uh, it does not. I find uh, just sort of again stay painful. But let us um, 
let us not leap forward, but continue through here. Um, all right. Last time, we, in looking at chapter, what was it, 12, if I'm remembering my numbers correctly, um, we were primarily looking at Orwell's, not only her first contemplations, and of course that very remarkable scene where she sees the palace in the morning uh, through the cloud, uh, that, you know, that cloud that was between them that gets lifted for a moment. Um, and uh, the... Um, uh, and then we, uh, we we had conversation between her and Bardia. We were looking at sort of the, uh, once again, we were getting the wisdom of Gloam, and now we're going to get the wisdom of Greece, right? Um, she is seeking the advice of the two people whom, in chapter 14, Psyche will confess are the two wisest men that she knows in their own ways, right? Uh, the fox, of course, uh, for his wisdom, um, but Bardia as well, Um for uh, uh, for his very different kind of wisdom. And we spent some time looking at that last time um, and where Orowal was kind of ending up um, after that. Um, here is the fox's response to Orowal's story. Alas, alas, poor Psyche, said the fox, our little child, and how she must have suffered. Hellebore's the right medicine, with rest and peace and loving care. Oh, we'd bring her into frame again, I don't doubt it, if we could nurse her well. But how are we to give her all or any of the things she needs? My wits are dry, daughter. We must think, though, contrive. I wish I were Odysseus, I or Hermes. Um, even before we continue... Notice, and this is characteristic of the fox, and even Orwal will confess that this is a pattern with him, that he is quick to analyze, he is quick to sort of see to the root of the matter, or at least what looks like the root of the matter from his point of view, right? But what he is not good at is actually making plans. And what he's even worse at is actually implementing plans, right? Um, so here, uh, he noticed that he immediately diagnoses the situation, literally diagnoses, right? He's doing a medical diagnosis of Psyche based on the story. Um, and, but then immediately is, you know, so he, he has this, this, does this very quick, almost instantaneous process of analysis and diagnosis uh, and conclusion. And yet, his wits are dry. We must think, contrive, and he never gets there. Um, he will never, you know, spoiler for the rest of the chapter, he will never come up, in fact, with a plan. Um, the uh, Odysseus and Hermes reference. Odysseus and Hermes are famous for being clever, for 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 coming up with and executing clever plans. Um, Odysseus is not just somebody that you go to for a good talk. He's not just a philosopher. He's a doer of deeds. He's a person who thinks things through, comes up with cunning plans, and even executes them himself. 
And Hermes, of course, is the same. He is the uh, the god of thieves and tricksters. Um, he's the one who, in his literally in his infancy, like before he was even a toddler, he stole a herd of cattle and contrived how to conceal their hoof prints so that they couldn't be traced to where he had put them. Um, that's that's Hermes, right? That's what he does. Um, uh, so um, anyway, that's um, so they are Odysseus within the human realm is kind of the paragon of cunning plan makers and Hermes on the divine level is the sort of archetype of people who come up with sharp and devious schemes for achieving their ends and that's exactly what the fox is um, is is worst at um, anyway continuing with the passage you think then she's mad for certain he darted a quick glance at me why daughter what then have you been thinking You'll call it folly, I suppose. But you weren't with her, grandfather. She talked so calmly. There was nothing disordered in her speech. She could laugh merrily. Her glance wasn't wild. If I'd had my eyes shut, I would have believed her palace was as real as this. But your eyes being open, you saw no such thing? You don't think, not possibly, not as a mere hundredth chance, there might be things that are real, though we can't see them? Um, okay. Uh, no. Uh, oh, Morgul, did Bardius saw Psyche across the river? Yes, he did. They spoke with each other. Um, uh, he didn't see the palace, however. Bardia didn't. Um, yeah. The, 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 there was... Remember, they, they, they saw her, and um, remember she said to him... This was at the beginning of chapter 11, I think. She said to him, like, I'm sorry, Bardia, you can't come over. And he's like, no, no, thank you. I don't want to go, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, anyway, okay. So, on the one hand, the fox is... It's, it's, it's interesting to see Orwell's reaction here. Because the fox's instantaneous diagnosis is precisely the thing which, when she thought of it, she was clinging to as a kind of lifeline, if you remember. Remember when, not at the beginning of the conversation, but later in the conversation, um, the idea of her being mad was on the table way at the very beginning of their meeting. But Orwell loses sight of it over the course of chapter 11. And it isn't until after she's come close to believing, but then chosen not to, that it suddenly comes back to her as a sort of ally, as a sort of rescue, almost, if you remember that passage late in chapter 11. Um, when, oh, madness. Oh, whew. And she's, and she's like, I'm, I was so glad I thought of that again. Right? That is a, a safe, a comfortable... Um, uh, Interpretation, right? Um, yeah. Oh, a good question, Jackie. How old do we think Orwell is here? Um, yeah, I would say early twenties. Remember, we were guessing she was probably ten, eleven, something like that. Maybe twelve. I don't think um, she's probably still younger than Psyche's mom, but not by very much, right? Um, so I think 12, 13 is probably the upper end 
of Orowal's age when Psyche is born. Um, and then, uh, you know, and now Psyche is probably, uh, you know, late teens or something now. So actually Orowal could be between 25 and 30 by now, actually. Um, so she, she speaks, you know, like a matron talking to her, uh, you know, wedded daughter, right? Um, but though she is significantly older than Psyche, the gap is still less than it would be, right? Um, she's still, at the end of the day, is her older sister uh, as well. Um, so, um, so yeah, yeah, I think probably, probably 25 to 30. Um, but, um, yeah, no, I, I, she can't be that much older, Jackie. I, I mean, again, I can't think Psyche... I'd, I'd be shocked if Psyche were 20. Um, that that would be, I don't know, shocking. That would be very surprising to me if Psyche were fully 20 years old um, by the time that this happened. Um, so, yeah, and she, Orwell, was definitely not. I mean, there is no way. Orwell cannot possibly be 40. Um, think about it, even Redival. Redival's not married yet. Now, Redival probably could have been married younger than this. Remember, there were problems finding um, uh, finding a husband for uh, Redival. Um, Redival's the marriageable one because she's pretty, unlike Orwell. Um, but the father, you know, the king, wasn't able to marry her off because there weren't any kings. She could only marry a king's into a king's family, and there were no kings who were willing. Uh, to al to ally themselves uh, with uh, with Gloom, um, so um, and the implication. Remember, there was that one scene when Redival comes to Orwal and begs her to to convince the king, like that for she and the fox should convince the king to find her a husband. Right? There's a like a hint of um, desperation on Redival's part. I think that Redival is over twenty. Um, she's you know, she might even be as uh, as close to an old maid as Charlotte Lucas uh, from Pride and Prejudice. Um, but um, uh, but yeah, so um, I do think a like Orwell is likely around thirty. Redival is probably mid twenties, still perfectly marriageable. But she herself, Redival herself, seems to be starting to get uncomfortable with uh, her unmarried state at that age. And that would seem to me to track to mid-20s. Um, and then Psyche uh, is, again, I, I think almost certainly under 20. Um, but, um, yeah, Sarah, I don't know that Redival would consider herself an old maid at 18. I mean, goodness knows, I, she's... As a king's daughter, she's almost certainly marriageable by the time she's 12, right? I mean, if she's menstruated, she's marriageable. Um, so she could very well. I mean, many is the queen uh, who is married to a king, at, you know, at the age of tw at the age of 12 uh, in, you know, in European history. Um, and, um, uh, and, and I see no reason to think that that would not be the case here. And certainly we have positive reason to think that sort of thing, as it seems very unlikely that Psyche's mom was more than 12 to 14. I think 14 at the, at the, at the, at the highest, basically. Um, but, um, uh, anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, 
Okay. Anyhow, um, uh, good, quite good to kind of lay that out. But coming back, Jackie, to what I think was sort of the thrust of your question, and somebody else was commenting on this too. Um, it is easy to think of Orwell as like a, you know, fifty-year-old woman, uh, you know, or, or at least like in her forties or something, um, when she's talking to Psyche here. She she sounds like that. That's the the sort of posture that she adopts, right? Um, but uh, but it's not. That's not the case at all. Um, as again, we get we get little reminders of that when Psyche calls her sister. She alternates between calling her Maya, mom, mommy, uh, literally, and um, and and sister. Uh, so that's. Um, uh, yeah, again, little sort of um, reminders. Now, narrator Orwell, um, I think narrator Orwell is probably over 60. Um, she considers herself an old woman. And you'll sometimes hear people say like, oh, but people didn't live that long in the ancient world. And so you would be considered an old, you know, like an old uh, man or an old woman by the time you're 40. That is not true. Um, people died younger that's true. Like the average life expectancy takes into account all the people, especially babies and children who die young. Right. Um, but I mean, this, I mean, again, this was true throughout the middle ages. I, to which I can speak better than I can the ancient world. Um, that, um, you still, I mean, they would consider like a 60, 70, 80 year old person old. Um, so if you're talking about, to use the Latin term, a senex, right, a, a, an old man, um, uh, you're generally describing somebody who's like 65 to 80 years old. Now, there are fewer of them running around. Well, fairly few of them running around. Few of them, <laughs> of them walking carefully around um, uh, in, in the Middle Ages than there are now in the modern world. That's where the age discrepancy goes. But it is certainly not true that, uh, you know, to say like, oh, yes, in the ancient world, the, the you know, the, the, the life expectancy was only 30. That does not mean a 30-year-old would have been considered ancient um, by any means. Um, but exactly, JJ, that's exactly it. Although people died more often of sickness or of other things, they still knew that it was an early death, not a death of old age. Yes, they did know the difference between dying of sickness, dying of accident, and dying of old age. And they knew that people didn't die of old age until, you know, they were significantly older. Um, but um, uh, anyway, um, or war. Yeah, exactly. There's all kinds of uh, uh, there's all kinds of uh, uh, things. And yes, high infant mortality. Um, uh, uh, Katriana skews the average severely. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um Anyway, okay. Uh, back to Orwell here in this passage. I'm not going to get through my weekly 17 slides at this rate. Um, the point I was making was the fox begins from the point of view, like with the exact balm that she was clinging to herself uh, two chapters ago late in her conversation with, with Psyche. Madness is a safe explanation, is a comfortable explanation. 
Madness is an explanation that prevents Orowal from having to come face to face with the very uncomfortable possibility that Psyche is telling the truth. Um, and when she found herself being convinced or at least convinced to consider seriously um, Psyche's words, um, she that was when she clung to the idea of her madness because that's a way to reconcile Psyche's words with uh, the the truth that she hopes is true, right? Or with with like uh, the 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 idea that she is investing herself in, namely that Psyche's uh, palace is in fact not real and the god is not real. Um, and yet, you'd think, given that, given that fact of what we saw there in chapter eleven. When the first thing out of the fox's mouth after the story is like, well, open and shut case of madness, right? I wish we could get her and take care of her and give her some hellebore and nurse her through this, right? You'd think that this would be the greatest relief to Orwell, right? That she would just be melting in, um, <laughs> sorry, a large insect just fell from the ceiling of my uh, room right in front of me. That was a little bit alarming. Um but um, uh, it's just a stink bug from outside. Nothing uh, too scary. Um, but um, uh, <laughs> startling, however. Anyway, anyway, okay. Again, you would think that she would be absolutely melting in relief to hear the fox's affirmation of her favorite interpretation of what was going on, right? And yet, notice that her. Um, Notice that her reaction is quite the contrary, right? When she hears the fox saying, oh, it's obviously madness, she instead she pushes back against that. You think she's mad for certain? You're, you're, you're positive of that? And then notice the fox is like, what then have you been thinking? Um, and then she starts in confessional mode, right? If I'd had my eyes shut, I would have believed her palace was as real as this. Or rather, it's not even a confession so much as she is here admitting to the evidence against this interpretation, right? She knew at the time, she knew at the time that the madness interpretation was weak because Psyche was not acting like a crazy person. Um, and, but so she comes out with this. She, um, um, she brings forth with thoroughness all of the counter-arguments against the madness interpretation. So again, it's she doesn't close her eyes to it. Um, and she even pushes it so far as to... Well, not very vulnerably. I was going to say make herself very vulnerable. Make herself 
a little bit vulnerable anyway um, to con to admit to the fox that um, she has entertained the idea. She's quietly, cautiously, carefully saying, but grandfather, what if it's true? It, it's not possible? Are you telling me it is completely impossible that it's true? And notice how, but notice how careful she has to be about this. You'll call it folly, I suppose, she says. And then look at all of her qualifications. You don't think, not possibly, not as a mere hundredth chance, there might be things that are real, though we can't see them? Could there be divine realities that our eyes don't have access to? And the fox's response, I didn't quote the fox's full response, but he he starts talking about, so of course there are things that are real that we can't see them, right? He starts listing things like um, musical notes, virtue, right? Things, those are real things even though we can't see them. And she's like, no, 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 not that kind of thing, right? Um, and then he's like, what are you thinking, right? right? Again, following up on that, like, why daughter, what then have you been thinking line, right? Um, and uh, it is interesting, Jackrabbit, the um, the fact that he does not, the fox, that is, does not take her questions in the direction of thinking about, like, um, you know, the ideal forms of things uh, that are invisible to our sight compared to the shadow reality that we see here below us. I think if you if we needed proof that the fox is not really a Platonist, I think this is it. Right. A Platonist, I think, would know exactly how to respond to these questions. Um, the fox is a is a is a more like a Stoic, not a Platonist. Um, remember, the only time we've gotten what sounded like references to Platonism were in in that paragraph where Orwell says the fox has said that there are other masters other than the ones that he follows who say this other thing. And that seemed to be. And there are, there have been times when especially in psyches um, talk about like her desires for unseen things and stuff where she sounded like um, she has um, taken on board a little bit of Platonism uh, through the Fox. So there seems to be a kind of a coloring of Platonism in some of the Fox's philosophy and it, at the very least a kind of familiarity that he has passed on that familiarity to uh, uh, to his pupils Um but um, but the fox is clearly not, you know, in his, at his core, a Platonist, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and JJ, you're absolutely right. It's interesting that she pushes back and protests, but still withholds the biggest evidence for her, which was the fact that she actually saw the palace for a bit. Yes. And... The fox, of course, will later on, when she keeps pushing in this direction, without even saying, I totally saw the palace too, actually, Grandfather. Um, even without admitting that, she still comes to a point where the fox says, um, uh, where the fox says, um, I'm beginning to think that if we do get some of that hellebore, the first dose should be for you. 
right? And he says it very gently, right? Uh, in the kind of chiding, teasing way he has when he's getting into teaching teacher mode again with her. Um, and uh, so, yes, she does not... She does not admit that. She won't go there, right? And one of the things that I think that we can see from this ver from the very beginning of this conversation, both from Orowal's hesitancy to fully explain what she feels to be her dilemma. Remember, she's like, it's a riddle. It's a puzzle. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to understand things, right? That's been her whole premise for these whole two chapters here, um, both 12 and 13. Um, this is no riddle to the fox, right? To the fox, this is obvious what's going on here, right? Um, or there might be a, po a couple possible solutions, but, I mean, there aren't that many possible explanations for what's going on with Psyche as far as the fox is concerned. And that's because, as we can see, as he keeps pushing back against her, right, um, he won't even admit the possibility of an, of an unseen reality, right? Um, of the reality, frankly, of any of the mysteries, you know, the think about the, you know, the, the mysteries of Ungit, right? Thinking back to the conversation with the priest, um, with the, the, the priest of, uh, of Ungit. Um, so yeah, um, the fox is compassionate and loving, but quite closed-minded about these things. Um, and yes, Maury and I agree. Orwell is not without fear that she herself has gone mad. I don't think she seriously doubts herself. Um, that doesn't seem to be an idea that she really gives a lot of oxygen to during these. It, I mean, it's it kind of comes up, but I don't think that that's her. That's a, a, a primary uh, uh, sort of emphasis for her. Um, yeah. Um, exactly, JJ. I think she's more afraid that it could be true. Um, yes. Yes. Um, Leaf of Starlight, yes. In her core, she definitely knows that she saw the palace. We saw her immediately trying to rationalize that. It's another puzzle. Did I really see it or did I not see it? When you ask the gods to communicate clearly, when you ask for a clear sign, right? I don't know whether to believe Psyche or not. I need a clear sign so that I can know for sure whether or not to believe her. And then you see the palace, you know, you see that it's true. You, you're given a glimpse of it. There you go, right? Um, and now what? You want another sign to know that that sign was a true sign, right? Um, yeah, it's... Um, it speaks pretty clearly to Orowal's 
the resistance of Orwell's will to this. Um, personally, I don't think her case against the gods is going very well. At least not, I think, in that uh, in that incident. Um, and though, yes, first fish, that's exactly her questions, right? Did she see what she wanted to see? Did she just, like, trick herself into seeing the palace? Though remember that she immediately says, I could not have imagined that. Like, what I saw was something, you know, bizarre and unusual and unexpected beyond anything I could have imagined from my own experience. Um, but then, in addition, the question, did the gods send a sight to trick her? Yes. But again, even that question, maybe it was a fake seeing just to, just to mess with me. That's a question which already presumes on a certain conclusion about the gods and their motivations. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Um, and Yero, that is, of course, an excellent question. Um, if she wasn't so afraid of losing Psyche, would she be this resistant to believing that she saw the palace? Um, no, I do not think so. Right? And again, we saw all of these things all tangled up together um, in chapter 11. Both her resistance, her sort of general resistance to divine things, but also the sense of competition Right, that gap that's opening between her and Psyche, that sense of them being in two different worlds, and and she's losing Psyche, right? And she wants Psyche, and she wants Psyche to herself, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, she wants to keep Psyche on her own terms, Cal Elros, exactly so. Exactly so. Um, but, um, yeah. Anyway... Let's keep going. Hey, two slides in an hour. Oh, Grandfather, I don't mean things like that, like musical notes and virtue and things like that. If there are souls, could there not be soul houses? He ran his hands through his hair with an old familiar gesture of teacher's dismay. Child, he said, you make me believe that after all these years you have never even begun to understand what the word soul means. Um, love this. You, you get the wordplay here, right? Because I, I don't think that the fox himself does. Um, what is, they're speaking in Greek. What's the word soul in Greek? Psyche. Exactly. Exactly. What the fox has literally just said is you make me believe that after all these years you have never even begun to understand what the word psyche means. Um, and um, this is one of those moments. It's a short moment. This is, for Lewis, um, this is 
an extremely small waving of a flag. That is waving of a flag to remind you, to encourage you to think allegorically. Um, Lewis loves allegory. Footnote, because I always have to say this, the Chronicles of Narnia are not allegory. It's a different kind of thing that he's doing in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's not allegory. But he does love allegory, both as a reader and as a writer. He loves allegory. And um, this is the kind of allegory that he's doing here. And it's, um, it is a very um, deep kind of allegory because, um, because it's an allegory that's meant to be read on multiple levels at the same time. Psyche is not merely a symbol. She is not merely an embodiment of the human soul. But she is an embodiment of the human soul also, right? Her story, the story of Psyche and Orowal and Redival and Fox, um, this is a story on its own terms, right? And we need to remember, we cannot, if we just start abstracting, right? Um, think about the conversation we were just having before about the ages of Orowal and Psyche. If we're not thinking about those characters in these terms, the story absolutely encourages us to think about these characters in those terms. It absolutely encourages us um, to remember, to think about these people as people. Um, and to think about their sort of function and relationship within this story in these terms. But there is also this symbolic overlay, right? Because of her name, Psyche, um, which means soul, Psyche's adventure here, Psyche's encounter with the divine takes on this larger allegorical resonance at the same time that this is the story of Psyche and Orwell and what happened with them, but this is also a kind of embodiment of, in principle, the encounter between the human soul and the divine. And remember, that was exactly what, that was the, um, uh, that was the primary focus of Psyche's own story when she told it. Remember how, that's what she kept emphasizing, all of these, um, uh, the feelings and reactions that she had as a mortal coming into contact with the divine, right? She is a dramatization, an exploration of what it looks like or can look like when a human soul comes in contact with the divine. Um, that, that symbolic allegorical resonance is real with Psyche a crucial element of her character. But, despite the fact that her name is basically human soul, right, we can forget that. This passage helps us to remember it. You have to know some Greek, right? If you don't know the Greek and you're not thinking about it in those terms, you might miss this, right? That's a little unusual for Lewis. Um, C.S. Lewis was first and foremost, it, I, my own assessment of him, he is first and foremost a teacher. Um, that's 
he is at as Tolkien is at his heart a poet and a painter, um, Lewis is at his heart a teacher, and um, but he uh, this makes Tolkien very much more willing than Lewis to run the risk that readers won't get the point. Um, Lewis is not as willing to run that risk that readers won't get the point. This is what makes Lewis so a, a, a much, much better writer of nonfiction. Um, On Fairy Stories is a genius essay. Uh, it would be about 25 times as effective if Lewis had written it. <laughs> um, uh, it's just he, Tolkien, was not a great nonfiction writer. Um, he just didn't think that way. It wasn't how he was wired. Um, but um, uh, anyway, um, he um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. Uh, I've often, of course, people often, uh, you know, Arthur, say that the Chronicles of, Not of Narnia are not subtle. Uh, who, who promised they would be? Did anyone suggest that they ought to be? Um, it's, a, it's a quite clear and plain premise. There's nothing wrong with that. That's quite traditional, actually. Um, I, there's, um, uh, there's this sense, I, I have no beef with anybody who doesn't like that. Um, but I, I often hear people, and I'm, Arthur, I'm not accusing you of this, uh, but, but, but I say, I've, I've often heard people talk about that with this sense of like, uh, like betrayal almost, right? Like it's not the done thing, you know, to do that kind of thing. And I, I, like, you don't have to like it, but there's nothing wrong with like there's no rule that says you have to. And again, a lot of this is because a lot of the people that I talk to are Tolkien fans. And so, yeah, uh, if Tolkien is your standard, then he will, uh, you know, you will be sort of acculturated in a particular way. And the sort of thing that Tolkien, that Lewis rather is doing in the Chronicles of Narnia will feel very different and in some ways kind of shocking right um but there's uh not really um uh, uh again like it's uh i understand what you say about being being in your face but if someone you know, uh, presents you with a bouquet of flowers, they tend to put them in your face. That's how it works, right? That's the proper way to, <laughs> to present some things, right? Um, uh, anyway, uh, it's, um, uh, as they say, you know, I'm not suggesting there's a right or wrong answer here, but that's my point, is that I don't think there's a right or wrong answer here. Um, that um, uh, that Lewis, anyway, whatever. Um, 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Marvel Hamster. I'm not a huge fan of Planet Narnia, but now that's a huge digression, and I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna even go there. Okay. Um, uh, the word soul allegory. There we are. Anyway, the point I was making is that this is unlike Lewis does almost... I mean, I, I, I can't remember Lewis dropping hints this subtly when he's doing allegory, right? Um, but um, anyway, okay. Um, all right, let's keep going. Orwell has just said the fox would laugh at her um, if he knew the things that she had been, like the ideas she had been even briefly entertaining. Right. I'd be more likely to weep. Oh, child, child, child. When shall I have washed the nurse and the granddam and the priest and the soothsayer out of your soul? Do you think the divine nature... Why, it's profane, ridiculous. That is, that the god could marry Psyche, right? Um, he is responding to the idea that there may actually be a god on the mountain who is has married and is having sex with, with Psyche, like that kind of actual literal marriage with Psyche. Um, that's what he is calling profane and ridiculous here. You might as well say the universe itched or the nature of things sometimes tippled in the wine cellar. I haven't said it was a god, grandfather, said I. I am asking who you think it was. A man, a man, of course, said the fox, beating his hands on the table. What, are you still a child? Didn't you know there were men on the mountain? Men, I gasped. Yes, vagabonds, broken men, outlaws, thieves. Where are your wits? Um... <laughs> Sarah says the nature of things tippled in the wine cellar enter Terry Pratchett <laughs> yes um, uh, <laughs> the nature of things sometimes tippled in the wine cellar sounds almost like a, a, a it could almost be a title of a Terry Pratchett book couldn't it um, yeah yeah anyway um, uh are there actually men on the mountain? Curious chance. I see no reason to doubt it. Um, that there are... Now, well, okay. Curious chance. I have one reason to doubt it. And that is the general sense that it seems that everybody who lives thereabouts has that that's holy ground up there. Um, but that... But remember, there's there's Gloam and there's the river and then... Across the there's the mountain. Remember, Orwell herself had never even she'd never even been outside of the city. She'd never even been um, other than in the hills on the other side, right? She'd never been up in the mountain before. So there's this sense of it's 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 wilderness. Lions live out there and stuff, right? Um, on the mountain, and so therefore vagabonds, outlaws, thieves, broken men, um, people who are cast out of society in Gloam may go and live out there in the wilderness on and around the mountain. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean they'd be up in that secret valley of the gods, which Bardia and Graham both seem to have no interest in entering, right? Um, so 
there is that one reason perhaps to have hesitation uh, in believing this, but I, but that there are uh, men, as the fox suggests, does not seem in any way outlandish. Um, uh, okay. Um, one thing I would point out. Notice that the fox is inconsistent. There are several. Um, the inconsistencies of the fox are, of course, generally charming, right? Including, of course, an inconsistency which Orwell herself does not think of or point to in the conversation they were just having, right? Uh, namely, that he will say things like this, that it's profane, ridiculous to say these things about the divine nature. And yet he loves the story of Aphrodite and Anchises, which is quite exactly the same as what is going on with Psyche, right? So um, he loves those stories. He is swept away uh, by those stories uh, when he recites the poetry. And he has taught uh, he has tried to train Orowal and Psyche as well as he can in the wisdom of his Greek masters, and yet he has also taught them all of the myths and poetry as well, right? Um, they know the story of, uh, you know, Agamemnon and Iphigenia, the daughter whom he sacrifices. They, you know, he doesn't have to explain who Odysseus and Hermes are, right? Um, she knows. Um so the fact that he himself so the the question that the fox never seems to ask is why does he love those stories so much what is it that sweeps him away what is it that speaks to his soul about the story of what is it about the story of Aphrodite and Anchises right that speaks to his soul even though he then denies it right now, he might characterize this as his own weakness, right? He's well aware of the fact that he um, still has much further to go in the, you know, in the, the path of wisdom. Um, but, um, uh, but still, again, those inconsistencies. I, and that, but that's not where Orwell goes. She doesn't lean into that. But notice that he's also being logically inconsistent here. There are two very firm theories, right, that he comes... First, that his diagnosis. She's obviously insane, right? She's obviously gone mad, and we can hope to treat her, right? And now he considers it equally obvious that... The, so the theory about the madness is that none, none of this stuff is actually happening to her, right? She's living in a a delusion brought on by her madness. And the second is that she is being deceived by an outlaw, you know, by a man. They are potentially, they're not absolutely contradictory logically. Um, you could say that she was, has gone mad and her madness is being capitalized on by the, the outlaw or thief. Um, but, um, but it still seems to me to invite the question
he's willing to go a certain way. Like his his initial diagnosis of madness and the conversation that came after it seem to imply there is no reality to anything she's saying. She says she's living in a palace. She says she has a husband. She says all of these things, right? None of it's true. She's insane, right? But then, oh, wait, actually, maybe the husband part is true, innocent, not what she thinks, right? But maybe there's some truth to that. And it suggests other things, too. Why, if there's no house that she's living in, why does she not show more evidence of exposure? Um, because she, she seems, in fact, to be living in that valley. Um, and not in the house of a, you know, a thief or outlaw that she has merely mistaken for a palace. Right. How do you, how, how, you know, how would that be explained? Um, anyway, so there are the ideas that he throws out here don't entirely hold together, but both of them are stated by him with extreme confidence. Where are your wits? He says to her. Um, uh, of course, he says, right? This is the language that he uses with her. For the second time that day, I was utterly aghast. The fox's explanation seemed too plain and evident to allow me any hope of doubt. While Bardia was speaking, his had seemed the same. Remember, Bardia was suggesting that it's a hideous brute, which is why he doesn't want her to look at him, right? Um, that she is the bride of the brute is Bardia's explanation. That she is the, uh, you know, deceived horror of a thief and outlaw is the fox's explanation. Um, it looks, grandfather, said I dully, as if you had read the riddle right. It needed no Oedipus, but the real riddle's still to guess. What must we do? Oh, I'm barren, barren. I think your father has addled my brains with beating me about the ears. There must be some way, yet we've so little time. Um, uh, Oedipus, of course, as we call him in America, uh, is um, uh, famous for being a riddle solver. He doesn't have the reputation of Odysseus, of being the cunning contriver of plans. Um, but um, uh, it's um, uh, but he is the solver of riddles, right? That's what he is famous for, which is why uh, he says this. In England, um, they pronounce the O-E um, vowel in Greek as a long E. Um, Oedipus is how uh, most English people will say that name. Um, so I always say it that way in my head because, um, because of the rhyme. It's a great sentence. It needed no Oedipus. Um, is, um, uh, is, it's, it's a It's a favorite expression. Uh, it's it's an it's an it, it, it's an asthma thingy. Is it curious chance? Um, anyway, um, it's a favorite expression of mine, though I don't get to use it very often because most people won't get it. Not that they've never heard of Oedipus, Oedipus, but um, just most people don't get the "till we have faces" reference. But um, but yes, when you um, you know say things, you know give an interpretation and somebody says, oh, I think you're right about that. You say, oh, it needed no Oedipus. Um, 
but um, anyway, love that phrase. Anyway, so, okay. Um, once again, he comes back to his barrenness. Once again, we see the fox's wisdom as applied to the situation is ultimately barren. That It provides no remedy. Which is ironic, given that his whole starting point, um, uh, his whole starting point was a diagnosis, a treatment plan, right? Let's get some hellebore. We can take her. We can nurse her. We can, we can, uh, we'll, we'll set her to rights in no time, right? And yet he can't, um, he's barren, barren, um, his wisdom b- bears no children. Um, but also, at the same time, he is totally confident in his interpretation. Right? It needed no Oedipus. This was an easy riddle to solve. Right? Um, uh, it's not hard. When he goes on, the fox goes on to think it through a little bit more. This whole uh, mountainy man um, theory of his, um, and to explain how this could have come about, um, that he you know will have deceived her and have you know seduced her, uh, and you know has convinced her that he's the god coming to her and uh, is taking advantage of her gullibility and delusion uh, to sleep with her in the dark, right? Um, as the fox rather um, uh, bluntly walks through all that, right? Orwell does not take it. Yes, and he's sure that Psyche's likely to be pregnant soon. Yes. Um, and that's what sets her off here, specifically. Right? Um, uh, yeah. It was as if I'd been hit about the heart. Leprosy and scabs on the man, I gasped. Curse him, curse him. Psyche to carry a beggar's brat? We'll have him impaled if ever we catch him. He shall die for days. Oh, I could tear his body with my bare teeth. You darken our counsels and your own soul with these passions, said the fox. If there were anywhere she could lie hidden, if we could get her. Yeah, really looking like her dad in this scene, right? Remember that uh, Psyche's comment that she looked exactly like their father when she was angry. Um... Yes, yes. Um, remember the significance of how she is not only darkening their counsels um, by her passions, but she's darkening her own soul. This is part of the fundamental philosophy, the very Boethian philosophy, uh, or rather Boethius was following these same philosophies, um, that when you do evil, when you, when you give rein to your darker passions like this you are doing damage to yourself even more than you're doing harm to other people Um, if you're indulging in these passions of anger and revenge and uh, you know this desire for violence um, you are yes you will do harm to someone else but if you act them out but even just in indulging them the way that she is she's doing harm to her own soul um, 
Yeah. Well, Mighty Felix, I, the fox does believe in the soul. Remember, he, though he he talks about it in a different way, right? It's um. Uh, it is, it is the God within us. Remember how he's always talking about how, like, yes, like there is the God within us all. We're all, you know, that's why everybody in the Fox's philosophy, everybody are brothers, right? All people are equal because all people have the God within them, the God within me, and the God within you is sort of the way he talks, right? Um, and uh, he, um, uh, he. So he believes in the soul. But ironically, I, I, though I don't think that's his vocabulary exactly, right? Um, I, I think that that's what he's talking about when he talks about the God within us, right? We all, he talks about the divine nature, and we all have the divine nature within us as well, right? Which Orwell is damaging, Right. By giving way to her passions like this. Um, but. Um, uh, anyway, the. One of the conclusions here, I think, is that if we think back to Psyche's story about her experience of being a mortal encountering the divine. It's not the divine that the fox doesn't believe in. In a sense, it's the mortality that he doesn't believe in. Do you see what I mean by that? Um, there's the divine in all of them. It can get clouded. In some, it's thoroughly choked like a garden overrun with weeds, like the king. The king would be a good example. Um, but um, he believes that everybody has and everybody is born with that divine essence within them. So he's not on board with the idea of a marriage between the human and the divine anything like Psyche's marriage, right? Um, not only because it's impious blasphemy to imagine something like a god taking on mortal form and actually having sex with a human woman, which is what Psyche is claiming is happening, right? Um, I mean, that's why he's making the comparison of saying, like, the nature of things tippled in the wine cellar, right? Um, it's just as ridiculous uh, and impious to say that. Um, but uh, but yeah, Cal Elros, if everything is divine, then is anything divine? Yeah. Remember who else has that reaction? The king. Right? Um, when the fox says that all, you know, uh, there's divine blood in everyone, right? There's the God in everybody. I, all humans are, are equal. The king is like, well, I hope not. Right. Um, you know, he doesn't want to believe that um, because it's exactly it. Right. If everything is divine, then is anything divine? Um, there's nothing special about the king's house if everybody has the God within them. Um, but similarly, 
um, there can be no encounter between a human, between the human and the divine, if everybody is divine. Um, yes, and Leaf of Starlight, I, I do think that what you just said there is the logical extension of that. Everything is soul, in a sense, but the world is not enchanted in the way the people of Gloam believe. Yes, yes. Um, that is, I think, the heart of the beliefs of Gloam. That they live in the mortal world. And that the divine world, that the divine world is there and the human world is there. Um, and they're usually separate, but that the divine world keeps intruding. And there are time, there are places that are enchanted. There are places that are haunted with the presence of the divine, like the House of Ungit, like the Ungit statue, like the priest, especially when he has the bird mask on, right? Um, like the marriage bed, all kinds of places where the divine uh, and the human can interact with each other at times, right? But that's not a real comfortable thing. And remember Bardia's really important statement of his description of how he tries to exercise a, you know, um, live and let live policy with the gods and just not draw their attention. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Let's keep going. At last I said, it all comes to this, grandfather. I must go back to Psyche. I must overrule her somehow. Once she is on our side, once she knows her shame and danger, then the three of us must devise as best we can. It may be that she and I must go out into the wide world together, wander like Oedipus. And I with you, said the fox. Once you bade me run away, this time I'll do it. One thing certain, said I, she shall not be left to the felon who has abused her. I will choose any way, any way, rather than that. It rests on me. Her mother's dead. What mother but me has she ever known? Her father's nothing. Nothing for a father, and nothing for a king either. The honor of our house, the very being of Psyche, only I am left to care for them. She shall not be left. I'll... I'll... What, child? You are pale. Are you fainting? If there's no other way, I will kill her. Um, whew. All right. Um, uh, let me just continue because I kept going here. Bye-bye, said the fox, so loud that Pooby, that is uh, the uh, uh, Orwell's maid, stopped her game and stared at him. Daughter, daughter, you are transported beyond all reason and nature. Do you know what it is? There's one part love in your heart, and five parts anger, and seven parts pride. The gods know I love Psyche, too, and you know it, and you know I love her as well as you do. It's a bitter grief that our child, our very Artemis and Aphrodite all in one, should live a beggar's life and lie in a beggar's arms. Yet even this, it is not to be named beside such detested impieties as you speak of. Why, look at it squarely, as reason and nature have made it, not as passion would paint it. To be poor and in hardship? To be a poor man's wife? Wife? You mean his trull, his drab, his whore, his slut? 
Nature knows nothing of these names. What you call marriage is by law and custom, not nature. Nature's marriage is but the union of the man who persuades with the woman who consents. And so, the man who persuades, or more likely forces or deceives, being some murderer, alien, traitor, runaway slave, or other filth. Which you'll remember the fox is like, um... On the slave subject, right? I am a slave, and we just talked about me running away. So uh, you and I don't kind of look at that exactly the same way. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, notice Orowal's progression here, right? I must go back to Psyche. I must overrule her somehow. I need to convince her. I need to compel her. To overrule her. Right? Just to... Um, not to persuade, but to overrule. To make her know her shame and danger. And then when she's on our side, the three of us can contrive. We will do something. And what she suggests is to go out in the wide world together, to wander like Oedipus. Oedipus sets off as a blind beggar at the end of uh, Oedipus Tyrannus. Sorry, spoilers, if you don't know how Oedipus ends. Um, she's going to wander like Oedipus. And the fox immediately jumps in, and I with you. This time I will run away. Um, this is on both of their parts, a significant act of self-sacrifice. They will give up... I mean, Orwell is still the daughter of a king, right? Her future is uncertain, it's true. But still, she has never known anything but um, relative comfort, right? She certainly has never been wandering as a beggar woman around the world. Um, she's willing to lose all of everything that she's ever known, except for Psyche, right? She would choose Psyche over all of those things. That's good, right? That's self But then, and the fox is all about it, right? Completely down with her on that point. But then there's the shift. She shall not be left to the felon who has abused her. I will choose any way rather than that. she would rather kill Psyche herself than leave her the wife or whore of a murderer or felon or runaway slave. Um, yes, JJ, it is interesting that her thought goes to killing Psyche rather than killing the outlaw. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yes, Emily, this is where finally that uh, tendency that we've seen in Orwell already has finally come to the surface. That if I can't have her, then nobody can. Um, strain of her love for Psyche. Um, yes. Now, Judy, I agree with you. Um, that she believes Psyche is in a cult-like situation which demands an intervention. Yes. 
That's why I think she's using the word overrule. Of course, she's also, she's not just like a random friend or well-wisher who is, um, you know, intervening in a case like a cult-like situation, as you say, Judy. But, um, but also, she's her mom, functionally her mom, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's very clear, Cal Elros, that killing, it's, a, it's good to ask the question, is murder, is killing like this itself wrong in Gloam? Not the fox's reactions, right? But in Gloam itself, yes. Notice her own, the, the even the way they keep throwing around the word murderer here shows the um, um, the sort of direction of that you know, the, the place of that in this society, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, agreed, Alyssa. I was thinking of the king killing the cupbearer as well. It's the king at his most savage. Notice he, even the king has like a, a an almost psychotic break there, right? Like he doesn't remember. He's like, who, who, who did this when he sees the body of the, of the serving boy? Um, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, is killing somebody as um, uh, unthinkable in Gloam as it may be in our society? Certainly not. Um, I mean, heck, they do human sacrifice, right? That's a thing in Gloam. So uh, there's that. Um, but is murder still very definitely not only illegal, but immoral? Absolutely. And again, because murderers keep getting brought up as a rather extreme example of horrible people, as even in even in this case, um, yeah. Um, okay. Back to the fox's reaction. The idea of her killing. Oh, wait, hang on. Oh, sorry, one last thing I wanted to make sure I didn't miss. Um, notice her... Um, uh, sorry. There we go. Um, notice her um, Her reactions, right? Um, the trend that she goes. Her, father, her mother's dead. Her father's nothing. The honor of our house, the very being of Psyche, only I am left to care for them. The honor of our house, not a factor that the fox is on board with. This is, though, this keeps coming out of Orwell, though. Um, it's not only for Psyche's sake. It's like the shame of someone of divine lineage, divine royal lineage, um, being joined. It's not until the idea that Psyche might actually be pregnant by this thief and outlaw that this scum um, lowest of the low among the human hierarchy would not only sleep with but beget a child on Psyche the glorious daughter of kings right that bothers Orwell tremendously now, Leaf of Starlight, I absolutely do not deny 
that um, it also is a convenient thing to be morally outraged about to cover her personal feeling around psyche. But I, but I don't think she's covering it. Um, yes, to some extent, yes. Like, is it convenient? It's absolutely convenient. Um, but it does. She goes there a lot. She brings it up a lot. I think it's clearly a factor for her, especially since it's especially conspicuous because the fox himself is always trying to, he's trying, that's one of the things he's trying to wash out of her. He has for years, right? The nurse and the granddam and the priest and the soothsayer, right? All of these traditional superstitious beliefs um, and one that he explicitly contradicts on multiple occasions is this idea of the divine blood of their house. Um, but Orowal keeps coming back to it and bringing it up again and again. Um, and before this point, this was true um, back uh, even before Psyche was sacrificed. Um, yeah. Um, yes, I agree, Dolores Stroke. Her entire being and instinct is contrary, Orwell's, to the fox's teaching, and yet she respects him so much. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and Dolores Stroke, what we get then in the fox's reaction is an illustration of that departure, right? Of Orwell's like being in convictions and the fox's philosophy, which she respects as much as she does, right? The fox was like, yeah, it's horrible, and he hates to think of this um, um, this man, right? Um, this vagabond who has seduced, deceived, deflowered um, uh, Psyche. But notice when he considers it in the light of reason, as he puts it, right? When you step back and think about it without the passions, Orwell's passionate, violent response, her threat to murder Psyche in order to prevent, to stop this horrible thing from happening, um, is what brings out the fox's reason. He was giving way to his own passions before, right? Oh, my psyche, right? Uh, he gets more and more logical and rational in response to Orwell's passions. The gods know I love psyche too, and you know it. It's a bitter grief that our child should live a beggar's life and lie in a beggar's arms. Yet even this is not to be named beside such detested impieties as you speak of. Orwell has just said, I would rather kill her with my own hands than see her in the arms of a beggar. And he's like, whoa, hang on. Um, for her to be, to live a beggar's life and to lie in a beggar's arms, that is a bitter grief. But that is way better than her being murdered. Right. Um, why look at it squarely as reason and nature have made it to be poor and in hardship to be a poor man's wife you know what he's she knows Orwell knows what he's going to go on to say right where's that sentence going 
to be poor and in hardship, to be a poor man's wife, these are not evils, right? Um, they are only evil if you make them evil. A poor person who experiences hardship, right? A woman who is the wife of a poor man has the God in her, right? Is by her own choices to be able to live a life of enlightenment, right? Um, there's there's nothing intrinsically evil about poverty or hardship. Um, that's where he's headed, right? Yes, it's it's a bitter grief to us to imagine Psyche living this life, but it's not evil itself. Um, and this makes Orwell even more angry, right? She won't even hear her called, Psyche called, the beggar's wife, his troll, his drab, his whore, his slut. Nature knows nothing of these names, chastises the fox. Um, nature's marriage is but the union of the man who persuades and the woman who consents. Um, yeah, she won't hear it. Um, she won't hear it. The fox still can't come up with a plan. So he's gonna he's tired. He's gonna sleep on it. Right. Um and Orwell is disgusted. <laughs> Mary, that line about the man who consents who persuades and the woman who consents is going in your vows for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's not the way most of them are framed, it's true. Not real romantic in modern terms. Um, yeah, Dolor Stroke, that's exactly it. Nature, the nature of things, is completely rational, uh, according to the fox. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Orwell is left alone. Everyone goes from me, I said. None of them cares for Psyche. She lives at the very outskirts of their thoughts. She is less to them, far less, than Pooby is to me. They think of her a little, and then get tired, and go to something else. The fox to his sleep, and Bardia to his dull or scold of a wife. You are alone, Orwell. Whatever is to be done, you must devise and do it. No, one, no help will come. All gods and mortals have drawn away from you. You must guess the riddle. Not a word will come to you until you have guessed wrong and they all come crowding back to accuse and mock and punish you for it. I sent Pooby to bed. Then I did a thing which I think few have done. I spoke to the gods myself, alone, in such words as came to me, not in a temple and without a sacrifice. I stretched myself face downward on the floor and called upon them with my whole heart. I took back every word I had said against them. I promised anything they might ask of me, if only they would send me a sign. They gave me none. When I began, there was red firelight in the room and rain on the roof. When I rose up again, the fire had sunk a little lower, and the rain drummed on as before. Yes, the problem, Leaf of Starlight, is exactly exact, exactly as Yero says, they've already sent you several signs. Exactly. Um, 
you just if they would just send me a sign this other time I'm asking right they gave me none no sign um this is another moment that's really historically culturally cool right the idea of praying um of speaking to god or to the gods in such words as come to you not in a temple and without a sacrifice doesn't seem so strange from a modern perspective um was indeed unheard of in the ancient world not a thing that people did um like it's not just that they didn't think of it it's inappropriate to to come to the gods to initiate you know i was talking about the ways in which the divine world contacts the human world in different places in gloom that's clearly the culture right for a human to initiate that contact gutsy that's gutsy you don't just do it. Remember Bardia, right? Bardia does everything he can to keep the gods' attention away from him, right? To just, like, talk to the gods. Yo, hey, gods, over here. Come here. I want to talk to you, right? You don't do that. You really don't do that. You can't do that because there are only certain mechanisms by which the connection between the divine and the human can be established. Temples, sacrifices, that's um, that's uh, part of the thing. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, this is something I think it's even easy to miss in the Bible in particular in the Hebrew Bible, um, I think that Christians especially tend to not see the significance of the temple in the Hebrew Bible. Um, it's a big deal, the temple. Um, and uh, so anyway, yes, this is... Um, um, this is extremely countercultural what Orwell is doing here. And it's this fascinating but horribly ironic moment, isn't it? Um, where on the one hand she is doing a thing which seems like just the right kind of thing to do. Remember her perception of her and Psyche being in different worlds, right? And drifting apart from each other. Um, Psyche had crossed the boundary, like that stream, right? She had crossed the boundary and entered into the land of the gods, and Orwal was standing in the human world, and she couldn't reach her, right? Orwal is here reaching out to, calling out to that other world. There is a communication across the divide that Orwal is herself attempting to initiate here. That's very different than we've seen Orwell do. Very different from Orwell's approach and active choices that she has made to this point. And yet, um, and yet, she doesn't really seem open 
to the response. She is saying, send me a sign, send me a sign, when they've already sent her a sign three times, including at least one, the first one, which came to her like words spoken. Such words as came to me. That's exactly what happened. Words came to her as she was going up the mountain. Why should my heart not dance? Um, that's exactly what happened. Almost the words in which she described the experience. That words came to her. In her heart. Um, but every time she has seen a sign. That first one, going up the mountain. Why, why should my heart not dance? Psyche's uh, appearance and immediately echoing that, why should our hearts not dance? And the vision, the view of the palace that she was given in the morning. All three of those have not only been signs, they've been pretty clear signs of exactly the kind that she is calling for. And um, but she every time resolutely, immediately and resolutely set herself to reject it, to dismiss it, to make it go away, convince herself that it didn't happen, or even was wrong, was, was bad. Um, And so it seems no great wonder that she's not given a fourth sign here. Um, curious chance, I agree that the way that last sentence begins, when I began, there was red firelight in the room and rain on the roof. That leads us perhaps to expect when I rose up again, what the fire was out and, you know, the skies were clear, something like something to indicate a significant passage of time, right? That's what it seems set up for. But that doesn't seem, in fact, to be what she's saying at all. I don't know how much time passed. Presumably not hours, because the fire probably would have gone out, because Booby's not there to feed it, so and she's not been feeding the fire. So um, within a few hours, the fire probably would have gone out. Um, and so it hasn't, so it probably has not been hours. But I don't think this is about the passage of time. What she's doing is emphasizing how nothing has changed, how no kind of sign has been given at all from the gods. Um, yeah, exactly, Mighty Felix, emphasizing the lack of a sign. That's exactly it. My mind was much clearer. I now saw that I had, strangely, taken both Bardia's explanation and the fox's, each while it lasted, for certain truth. Yet one must be false, and I could not find out which, for each was well-rooted in its own soil. If the things believed in Gloam were true, then what Bardia said stood. If the fox's philosophy were true, what the fox said stood. But I could not find out whether the doctrines of Gloam or the wisdom of Greece were right. I was the child of Gloam and the pupil of the fox. I saw that for years my life had been lived in two halves, never fitted together. 
we have noticed this before. Right. Um, Orwell is just seeing it now. We saw it a little a little while before. Right. Um, she is there in the middle trying to judge these two things. These two chapters, chapter 12 and 13, really dramatize that division. Right. Really dramatize those two worlds that she is standing between, that she is sitting in judgment between. Um, as we've seen parallel to the position of the king, right? I am neither priest nor Greekling. Um, she has a much more constructive relationship with both halves than the king does. Um, but, but there she is. I could not find out whether the do doctrines of Gloam or the wisdom of Greece were right. Now remember, remember, um, We have seen, we have seen this done. She's there saying one of these has to be right and the other has to be, they can't both be true. They're contradictory to each other, which is true. So they can't both be true. So her question is, one of them has to be right and one of them has to be wrong. But we've seen somebody do this differently. We have seen one example of somebody who took the wisdom of Greece and the wisdom of Gloam and saw that both of them were partial understandings of another thing. That there is a sense in which, not in which neither of them is true, but in which both of them are true. That both of them have part of the truth. And if you can put them both together, if you can see beyond both of them, you can begin to see how both of them are pointing at the truth. And of course, that was Psyche. That was Psyche the night before her sacrifice. And then even more strongly in chapter 11, when they met again afterwards. We can see most explicitly in the earlier chapter, chapter 9, um, when they, uh, the, the, that night before her sacrifice in the room with five sides, um, we saw Psyche understanding, like getting more out of the fox's philosophy than the fox gets. We saw her getting more from the wisdom of Gloam than the priest or Bardia get in their different ways. And we saw her in chapter 11 beginning to encounter in a simple, straightforward, personal, tactile way the mystery, the truth that lay behind both of them. But that's not where um, that's not where um, where Orwell is, right? Um, that she had lived her life in two halves never fitted together seems clear. Um, but this, the kind of rigid thinking that she is showing here, one or the other must be true. Which is it? Right? Is very different from Psyche's response. Suddenly there rose up before me the memory of Psyche in the mountain valley, bright face, brimming over with joy. 
My terrible temptation came back to leave her to that fool happy dream, whatever came of it, to spare her, not to bring her down from it into misery. Must I be to her an avenging fury, not a gentle mother? And part of my mind now was saying, do not meddle. Anything might be true. You are among marvels that you do not understand. Carefully, carefully, who knows what ruin you might pull down on her head and yours? But with the other part of me, I answered that I was indeed her mother and her father too, all she had of either. That my love must be grave and provident, not slipshod and indulgent. That there is a time for love to be stern. After all, what was she but a child? If the present case were beyond my understanding, how much more must it be beyond hers? Children must obey. It had hurt me long ago when I made the barber pull out the thorn. Had I not nonetheless done well? I heartened my resolution. I knew now what, which of two things, I must do, and no later than on the day which would soon be breaking. Alyssa agreed. There rose up before me. Rose up, I don't know, maybe like a sign, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so wait a second. Um, you ask the gods for an answer to the question, and then all of a sudden, there rises up before you, right, um, the memory of Psyche. And this impulse that you have a hard time explaining comes upon you. And you hear part of, in part of your mind, right, you hear part of your mind saying these things as if you're hearing them in words. Do not meddle. Anything might be true. You are among marvels that you do not understand. Carefully, carefully. Who knows what ruin you might pull down on her head and yours. It's almost like that might be the God's answer to her prayers. But the other part of her has the answer. Love must be grave and provident. She is her mother and her father. Children must obey. What was she but a child? Right, JJ says, it can't be the answer to her prayers. It's not what she wanted to hear. Yes, exactly. Um, Leaf of Starlight, I too wonder what Orowal expects a, com a communication from the gods to be like. On the one hand, Orowal could, of course, very easily be forgiven if she has some rather narrow expectations. Of, I mean, when, or when uh, not Orowal, when Ungit sends a sign, right, she does so in certain ways, right? Um, generally, that those signs or the meaning of those signs are revealed by the priests. Um, that's their job. That's what they're for, right? Um, but she um, um, but she she has just been breaking that template herself, right? She was just admitting, I did a thing that nobody else has done. She thinks she might be unique in the world's history. As far, that's how countercultural it is in her experience. Um, 
I called out to the gods in just in normal words. I just talked to them. Yeah, what what do you do you expect them to, you know, send a sign in the flight of birds? In the entrails of a sheep, maybe? The gods do send messages that way. Everybody knows that, right? Priests interpret those things. That's well known in this world. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Panaro says, Orwell is the kind of person who keeps shaking the magic eight ball for a redo. Yeah, 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 it sounds like it. Um, Okay, so we only got through one chapter again. Not going to apologize. Um, next time, let us see, ambitiously, if we can get through chapters 14 and 15. 14, chapter 14, we're going to get the next confrontation. It'll be basically the third conversation between Orwell and Psyche. Uh, the first in the room with five sides, the second in their first meeting um, across the river and in in the valley and the third the second meeting right up in the valley of the gods so chapters 14 and 15 we'll we'll see if we can get through both of them next chapter 15 is relatively short though devastating um all right um then we will have come to the turning point of this book all right Thanks, everybody. Uh, don't forget, let me um, uh, resend the link to enter our drawing, our celebratory drawing in our fall fundraising campaign. Uh, and remember, for those who are listening asynchronously, uh, this link can be found in the YouTube description of this episode, in the, yeah, the description of the YouTube recording of this episode. Um, so if you listen to this in the podcast stream, Go to YouTube and you can find the you can find the um, uh, the link there, and uh, uh, we'll do a drawing live in class next time and we'll see who wins. Awesome! Thanks everybody, and I'll see you guys next week. Bye now. <laughs>